0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today, Chapter Six: The Skirts of the Coolin. From John Buckins, *Mr. Stanfast*. Obviously, I must keep away from the railway. If the police were after me in Morvern, that line would be warned, for it was a barrier I must cross if I were to go further north. I observed from the map that it turned up the coast, and concluded that the place for me to make for was the shore south of that turn, where heaven might send me some luck in the boat-line. For I was pretty certain that every porter and station-master on that tin-pot outfit was anxious to make better acquaintance with my humble self. I lunched off the sandwiches the broadberries had given me, and in the bright afternoon made my way down the hill, crossed at the foot of a small freshwater water and pursued the issuing stream through the midge-infested woods of Hazels to its junction with the sea. It was rough going, but very pleasant, and I fell into the same mood of idle contentment that I had enjoyed the previous morning. I never met a soul. Sometimes a roe deer broke out of the covert, or an old black cock startled me with his scolding. The place was bright with heather, still in its first bloom, and smelt better than the myrrh of Arabia. It was a blessed glen, "'and I was as happy as a king "'till I began to feel the coming of hunger "'and reflected that the Lord alone "'knew when I might get a meal. "'I still had some chocolate and biscuits, "'but I needed something substantial. "'The distance was greater than I thought, "'and it was already twilight "'when I reached the coast. "'The shore was open and desolate, "'great banks of pebbles, "'to which straggled alders and hazels "'from the hillside scrub. "'But as I marched northward "'and turned a little point of land— I SAW BEFORE ME IN A CROOK OF THE BAY A SMOKING COTTAGE, AND, plodding ALONG BY THE WATER'S EDGE, WAS THE BENT FIGURE OF A MAN, LADEN WITH NETS AND LOBSTER-POTS. ALSO BEACHED ON THE SHINGLE WAS A BOAT. I QUICKENED MY PACE AND OVERTOOK THE FISHERMAN. HE WAS AN OLD MAN WITH A RAGGED GRAY BEARD, AND HIS RIG WAS SEAMAN'S BOOTS AND A MUCH DARNED BLUE JERSEY. HE WAS DEAF. IT DID NOT HEAR ME WHEN I HAILED HIM. WHEN HE CAUGHT SIGHT OF ME, HE NEVER STOPPED. "'though he solemnly returned my good evening. "'I fell into step with him, "'and in his silent company reached the cottage. "'He halted before the door and unslung his burdens. "'The place was a two-roomed building with a roof of thatch, "'and the walls all grown over with yellow-flowered creeper. "'When he had straightened his back, "'he looked seaward and at the skies after prospect of weather. "'Then he turned on me his gentle, absorbed eyes. "'It will have been a fine day, sir,' Was you seeking the road to anywhere?' "'I was seeking a night's lodging,' I said. "'I've had a long tramp on the hills, "'and I'd be glad of a chance to not go in further.' "'I have no accommodation for a gentleman,' he said gravely. "'I can sleep on the floor, "'if you can give me a blanket and a bite of supper.' "'Indeed you will not,' and he smiled slowly. "'But I will ask the wife. "'Mary, come here.' An old woman appeared in answer to his call, a woman whose face was so old that she seemed like his mother. In highland places, one sex ages quicker than the other. This gentleman would like to bide the night. I was telling him that we had a poor small house, but he says he will not be minding of it. She looked at me with a timid politeness that you find only in outland places. We can do our best indeed, sir. The gentleman can have Colin's bed in the loft. "'but he will have to be doing with plain food. "'Supper is ready if you'll come in now.' "'I had a scrub with a piece of yellow soap "'at an adjacent pool in the burn, "'and then entered a kitchen blue with peat Reek. "'We had a meal of boiled fish, oat cakes, "'and skim milk cheese, "'with cups of strong tea to wash it down. "'The old folk had the manners of princes. "'They pressed food on me and asked me no questions.' till for very decency's sake I had to put up a story and give some account of myself. I found they had a son in the Argyles and a young boy in the Navy, but they seemed disinclined to talk of them or of the war. By a mere accident I hit on the old man's absorbing interest. He was passionate about the land. He had taken part in long-forgotten agitations, and had suffered eviction in some ancient landlord's quarrel farther north. "'Presently he was pouring out to me all the woes of the crofter, "'woes that seemed so antediluvian and forgotten "'that I listened as one would listen to an old song. "'You who will come from a new country "'will not have heard of these things,' he kept telling me, "'but by that peat-fire I made up for my defective education. "'He told me of evictions in the year, "'one somewhere in Sutherland, "'and of harsh doings in the Outer Isles.' was far more than a political grievance. It was the lament of the conservative for banished days and manners. Over in Skye was the fine land for black cattle, and every man who's had his bit herd on the hillside. And every man had his bit of herd on the hillside. But the laird said it was better for sheep. And then they said it was not good for sheep. So they put it under deer. And now there's no black cattle anywhere in Skye." "'I tell you, it was like sad music on the bagpipes hearing that old fellow, "'The war and all the things modern meant nothing to him. "'He lived among the tragedies of his youth and his prime. "'I'm a Tory myself and a bit of a land reformer, "'so we agreed well enough, so well, "'that I got what I wanted without asking for it. "'I told him I was going to Skye, "'and he offered to take me over in his boat in the morning. "'It'll be no trouble, indeed no. "'I'll be going that way myself to the fishing.' I told him that after the war every acre of British soil would have to be used for the men that had earned the right to it, but that did not comfort him. He was not thinking about the land itself, but about the men who had been driven from it fifty years before. His desire was not for reform, but for restitution, and that was past the power of any government. I went to bed in the loft in a sad, reflective mood, considering how, in speeding our newfangled plow, we must break down a multitude of molehills. "'and how desirable and irreplaceable was the life of the moles. "'In brisk, shining weather, with a wind from the southeast, "'we put off the next morning. "'In front was a brown line of low hills, "'and behind them, a little to the north, "'that black tooth-comb of mountain range "'which I'd seen the day before from the Arisag Ridge. "'That is the Coolin," said the fisherman. "'It's a bad place where even the deer cannot go.' "'but all the rest of Skye was fine land for black cattle. "'As we neared the coast, he pointed out many places. "'Look over there, sir, in that glen. "'I've seen six cot-houses smoking there, "'and now there's not any left. "'There were three men of my own name "'had crofts on the mackers beyond the point. "'and if you go there, you'll only find the marks of their bit gardens. "'You will know the place by the Gein trees.' "'when he put me ashore in a sandy bay "'between green ridges of bracken. "'He was still harping upon the past. "'I got him to take a pound, "'for the boat, "'and not for the night's hospitality, "'for he would have beaten me with an oar "'if I'd have suggested that. "'The last I saw of him, "'as I turned round the top of the hill, "'he had still his sail down "'and was gazing at the lands "'which had once been full of human dwellings "'and now were desolate. "'I kept for a while along the ridge, with the sound of Sleat on my right, "'and beyond it the high hills of Noidart and Kintail. "'I was watching for the Tobermory, but saw no sign of her. "'A steamer put out for Mayleg, "'and there were several drifters crawling up the channel, "'and once I saw the white ensign and a destroyer bustled northward, "'leaving a cloud of black smoke in her wake. "'Then, after consulting the map, "'I struck across country, still keeping to higher ground, "'but, except at odd minutes, being out of sight of the sea.' I concluded that my business was to get to the latitude of Rana, without wasting time, so as soon as I changed my course I had the coolin' for company. Mountains have always been a craze of mine, and the blackness and mystery of those grim peaks went to my head. I forgot all about Fozzie Manor and the Cotswolds. I forgot, too, what had been my chief feeling since I left Glasgow, a sense of the absurdity of my mission. It had all seemed too far-fetched and whimsical. I was running apparently no great personal risk, and I had always the unpleasing fear that Blenkiron might have been too clever and that the whole thing might be a mare's nest. But that dark mountain mass changed my outlook. I began to have a queer instinct that that was the place, that something might be concealed there, something pretty damnable. I remember I sat on top for half an hour raking the hills with my glasses. I made out ugly precipices. "'and glens which lost themselves in primeval blackness. "'When the sun caught them, for it was a gleamy day, "'it brought out no colors, only degrees of shade. "'No mountains I'd ever seen, "'not the Drakensburg or the red kopjes of Damara land "'or the cold white peaks around Erzerum, "'ever looked so unearthly and uncanny. "'Oddly enough, too, the sight of them set me thinking about ivory.' There seemed no link between a smooth, sedentary being dwelling in villas and lecture rooms and that shaggy tangle of precipices I was looking at. But I felt there was, for I had begun to realize the bigness of my opponent. That was intelligible enough among the half-baked youth of Biggleswick and the pacifist societies, or even the tufts on the Clyde. I could fit him in all right to that picture. But that he should be playing his game among those mysterious black crags seemed to make him bigger and more desperate altogether a different kind of proposition. I didn't exactly dislike the idea, for my objection to my past weeks had been that I was out of my proper job, and this was more my line of country. I always felt that I was a better bandit than a detective, but a sort of awe mingled with my satisfaction. I began to feel about Ivory, as I had felt about the three devils of the black stone who had haunted me before the war, and as I never felt about any other Hun. The men we fought at the front, and the men I'd run across in the green mantle business, even old Stum himself, had been human miscreants. They were formidable enough, but you could gauge and calculate their capacities. But this man Ivory was like a poison gas that hung in the air and got into unexpected crannies, and that you couldn't fight in an upstanding way. Till then, in spite of blank iron solemnity, I had regarded him simply as a problem. "'but now he seemed an intimate and omnipresent enemy, "'intangible, too, as the horror of a haunted house. "'Up on that sunny hillside, with the sea winds round me "'and the whoops calling, "'I got a chill in my spine when I thought of him. "'I'm ashamed to confess it, but I was also horribly hungry. There was something about the war that made me ravenous, "'and the less chance of food, the worse I felt. "'If I had been in London with twenty restaurants open to me, I should as likely have not gone off my feed. That was the cussedness of my stomach. I had still a little chocolate left, and I ate the fisherman's buttered scones for luncheon. But long before the evening, my thoughts were dwelling on my empty interior. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. I put up that night in a shepherd's cottage miles from anywhere. The man was called Mcmorran and he had come from Galloway when sheep were booming. He was a very good imitation of a savage, a little fellow with red hair and red eyes, who might have been a picked. He lived with a daughter who had once been in service in Glasgow, a fat young woman with a face entirely covered with freckles and a pout of habitual discontent. No wonder, for that cottage was a pretty mean place. It was so thick with peat reek that throat and eyes were always smarting. It was badly built, "'it must have leaked like a sieve in a storm. "'The father was a surly fellow "'whose conversation was one long growl at the world, "'the high prices, "'the difficulty of moving his sheep, "'the meanness of his master, "'and the godforsaken character of Skye. "'Here's me, no seen baker's bread for a month, "'and no company but wean ignorant Highlanders "'that yatter gallic. "'I wish I was back in the Glinkins, "'and I'd gang the morn if I could get paid what I'm owed.' However, he gave me supper, a braxy ham and oat cake, and I bought the remnants off him for use for the next day. I did not trust his blankets, so I slept the night by the fire in the ruins of an armchair and woke at dawn with a foul taste in my mouth. A dip in the burn refreshed me, and after a bowl of porridge I took the road again, for I was anxious to get to some hilltop that looked over to Renna. Before midday I was close under the eastern side of the coolin, on a road which was more a rockery than a path presently I saw a big house ahead of me that looked like an inn, so I gave it a miss and struck the highway that led to it a little further north. Then I bore off to the east and was just beginning to climb a hill which I judged stood between me and the sea when I heard wheels on the road and I looked back. It was a farmer's gig carrying one man. I was about half a mile off, and something in the cut of his jib seemed familiar. I got my glasses on him and made out a short, stout figure clad in a Mackintosh. "'with a woolen comfort around its throat. "'As I watched, he made a movement as to rub his nose on its sleeve. "'That was the pet trick of one man I knew. "'Inconspicuously I stepped through the long heather "'so as to reach the road ahead of the gig. "'When I rose like a wraith from the wayside, "'the horse started, but not the driver. "'So you're there,' said Amos's voice. "'I've news for ye. "'The Tobermar will be in Rana by now. "'She passed broad for two hours since.' "'when I saw her I yoked this beast "'and came up on the chance of foregathering with you. "'How on earth did you know I'd be here?' "'I asked, in some surprise. "'Oh, I saw the way your mind "'was working from your telegram, "'and I says to myself, "'That man Brand,' says I, "'is not the teal to be easy stopped. "'But I was feared you might be a day late, "'so I came up the road to hold the fort. "'Man, I'm glad to see you. "'You're younger and super than me.' And yon Gresson's a stirring lad. There's one thing you've got to do for me, I said. I can't go into inns and shops, but I can't do without food. I see from the map there's a town about six miles up. Go there and buy me anything that's tinned-biscuits and tongue and sardines, and a couple of bottles of whisky if you can get them. This may be a long job, so buy plenty. Where'll I put them? was his only question. "'we decided on a catch a hundred yards from the highway "'in a place where two ridges of hill enclosed the view "'so that only a short bit of road was visible. "'I'll get back to the Kyle,' he told me. "'And a body there knows, Amos, "'if you should find a way of sending a message "'or coming yourself. "'Oh, and I've got a word to ye from a lady that we ken of. "'She says, "'The sooner you're back in Vanity Fair, "'the better she'll be pleased, "'always provided you've got over-the-hill difficulty.' A smile screwed up his old face, and he waved his whip in farewell. I interpreted Mary's message as an incitement to speed, but I could not make the pace. That was Gresson's business. I think I was a little nettled, till I cheered myself by another interpretation. She might be anxious for my safety. She might want to see me again. Anyhow, the mere sending of the message showed I was not forgotten." "'I was in a pleasant muse as I breasted the hill, "'keeping discreetly in the cover of the many gullies. "'At the top I looked down on Renna and the sea. "'There lay the tobermory, busy unloading. "'It would be some time, no doubt, before Gresson could leave. "'There was no rowboat in the channel yet, "'and I might have to wait hours. "'I settled myself snugly between two rocks "'where I could not be seen, "'and where I had a clear view of the sea and shore. "'But presently I found that I wanted some long heather "'to make a couch.' "'and I emerged to get some. "'I had not raised my head for a second "'when I flopped down again, "'for I had a neighbor on the hilltop. "'He was about two hundred yards off, "'just reaching the crest, "'and unlike me, walking quite openly. "'His eyes were on Rana, "'so he did not notice me, "'but from my cover I scanned every line of him. "'He looked an ordinary countryman, "'wearing badly cut, baggy knickerbockers "'of the kind that gillies affect. "'He had a face like a Portuguese Jew, "'but I would seen that type before "'among people with highland names. "'They might be Jews or not, "'but they could speak Gaelic. "'Presently he disappeared. "'He had followed my example "'and selected a hiding place. "'It was a clear, hot day, "'but very pleasant in that airy place. "'Good scents came up from the sea. "'The heather was warm and fragrant, "'bees droned about, "'and stray seagulls swept the ridge "'with their wings.' I took a look now and then towards my neighbor, but he was deep in his hidey hole. Most of the time I kept my glasses on Rena and watched the doings of the Tobermory. She was tied up at the jetty, but seemed to be in no hurry to unload. I watched the captain disembark and walk up to the house on the hillside. Then some idlers sauntered down towards her and stood talking and smoking close to her side. The captain returned and left again. A man with papers in his hand appeared. "'and a woman with what looked like a telegram. "'The mate went ashore in his best clothes. "'Then at last, after midday, Gresson appeared. "'He joined the captain at the piermaster's office "'and presently emerged on the other side of the jetty "'where some small boats were beached. "'A man from the Tobermory came in answer to his call. "'A boat was launched and began to make its way into the channel. "'Gresson sat in the stern, placidly eating his lunch.' "'I watched every detail of that crossing "'with some satisfaction that my forecast was turning out right. "'About halfway across, Gresson took the oars, "'but he soon surrendered them to the Tobermory man "'and lit a pipe. "'He got out a pair of binoculars and raked my hillside. "'I tried to see if my neighbor was making any signal, "'but all was quiet. "'Presently the boat was hid from me by the bulge of the hill, "'and I caught the sound of her scraping on the beach. "'Gresson was not a hill-walker like my neighbor.' It took him the best part of an hour to get to the top, and he reached it at a point not two yards from my hiding place. I could hear by his laboring breath that he was very blown. He walked straight over the crest hill till he was out of sight of Rana and flung himself on the ground. He was now about fifty yards from me, and I made shift to lessen the distance. There was a grassy trench skirting the north side of the hill, deep and thickly overgrown with heather. I wound my way along it until I was twelve yards from him, owing to the trench dying away. When I peered out of the cover, I saw that the other man had joined him. I dared not move an inch nearer, and as they talked in a low voice I could hear nothing of what they said, nothing except one phrase, which the strange man repeated twice, very emphatically. "'Tomorrow night,' he said, and I noticed that his voice had not the highland inflection which I looked for. Gresson nodded and glanced at his watch and then the two began to move downhill towards the road I'd traveled that morning. I followed as best I could, using a shallow, dry watercourse of which sheep had made a track, and which kept me well below the level of the moor. It took me down the hill, but some distance from the line that the pair was taking, and I had to reconnoiter frequently to watch their movements. They were still a quarter of a mile or so from the road, when they stopped and stared, and I stared with them. On that lonely highway... Travelers were about as rare as road menders, and what caught their eye was a farmer's gig driven by a thick set, elderly man with a woolen comforter around his neck. I had a bad moment, for I reckoned that if Gresson recognized Amos, he might take fright. Perhaps the driver of the gig thought the same, for he appeared to be very drunk. He waved his whip, he jiggled the reins, and he made an effort to sing. He looked towards the figures on the hillside and cried out something. The gig narrowly missed the ditch. "'and then to my relief the horse bolted. "'Swaying like a ship in a gale, "'the whole outfit lurched out of sight "'round the corner of the hill where lay my catch. "'If Amos could stop the beast "'and deliver the goods there, "'he had put up a masterly bit of buffoonery. "'The two men laughed at the performance, "'and then they parted. "'Gresson retraced his steps up the hill. "'The other man, "'I call him in my mind the Portuguese Jew, "'started off at a great pace due west, "'across the road.' "'and over a big patch of bog "'towards the northern butt of Coolan. "'He had some errand, "'which Gresson knew about, "'and he was in a hurry to perform it. "'It was clearly my job to get after him. "'I had a rotten afternoon. "'The fellow covered the moorland miles "'like a deer, "'and under the hot August sun "'I toiled on his trail. "'I had to keep well behind, "'and as much as possible in cover "'in case he looked back, "'and that meant that when he passed over a ridge "'I had to double not to let him get too far ahead. "'and when we were in an open place, "'I had to make wide circuits to keep hidden. "'We struck a road which crossed a low pass "'and skirted the flank of the mountains, "'and this we followed till we were on the western side "'and within sight of the sea. "'It was gorgeous weather, "'and out on the blue water I I saw cool sails moving "'and little breezes ruffling the calm "'while I was glowing like a furnace. "'Happily I was in fair training, "'and I needed it. "'The Portuguese Jew must have done a steady six miles an hour "'over an abominable country.' About five o'clock we came to a point where I dared not follow. The road ran flat by the edge of the sea, so that several miles of it were visible. Moreover, the man had begun to look round every few minutes. He was getting near something, and wanted to be sure that no one was in his neighborhood. I left the road accordingly and took to the hillside, which to my undoing was one long cascade of screes and tumbled rocks. I saw him drop over a rise which seemed to mark the rim of a little bay into which "'into which descended one of the big quarries of the mountains. "'It must have been a good half-hour later before I, "'at my greater altitude and the far worse going, "'reached the same rim. "'I looked into the glen, "'and the man I was following had disappeared. "'He could not have crossed it, "'for the place was wider than I had thought. "'A ring of black precipices came down "'to within a a half-mile of the shore. and between them was a big stream. "'Long, shallow pools at the sea-end "'and a chain of waterfalls above. "'He had gone to earth like a badger somewhere, "'and I dared not move in case he might be watching me "'from behind a boulder. "'But even as I hesitated he appeared again, fording the stream, "'his face set on the road we had come. "'Whatever his errand was he had finished it "'and was posting back to his master. "'For a moment I thought I should follow him, "'but another instinct prevailed. "'He had not come to this wild place for the scenery.' "'Somewhere down in that glen there was something or somebody that held the key of the mystery. "'It was my business to stay there until I had unlocked it. "'Besides, in two hours it would be dark, and I'd had enough walking for one day. "'I made my way to the stream side and had a long drink. "'The quarry behind me was lit up with the westering sun, "'and the bald cliffs were flushed with pink and gold. "'On each side of the stream was turf like a lawn, perhaps a hundred yards wide.' and then a tangle of long heather and boulders right up to the edge of the great rocks. I had never seen a more delectable evening, but I couldn't enjoy its peace because of my anxiety about the Portuguese Jew. He had not been there more than half an hour, just about long enough for a man to travel to the first ridge across the burn and back. Yet he'd found time to do his business. He might have left a letter in some prearranged place, in which case I would stay there till the man it was meant for turned up. Or he might have met someone, though I didn't think that possible. As I scanned the acres of rough moor and then looked at the sea lapping delicately on the grey sand, I had the feeling that a knotty problem was before me. It was too dark to try to track his steps. That must be left for the morning, and I prayed that there would be no rain in the night. I ate for supper most of the Braxy ham and oat cake I had brought from McMoran's cottage. It took some self denial, for I was ferociously hungry to save a little for breakfast the next morning. Then I pulled Heather and Bracken and made myself a bed in the shelter of a rock which stood on a knoll above the stream. My bedchamber was well hidden, but at the same time, if anything should appear in the early dawn, it gave me a prospect. With my waterproof I was perfectly warm, and after smoking two pipes, I fell asleep. My night's rest was broken. First it was a fox which came and barked at my ear and woke me to a pitch-black night. "'with scarcely a star showing. "'The next time it was nothing but a wandering hill wind, "'but as I sat up and listened "'I thought I saw a spark of light near the edge of the sea. "'It was only for a second, "'but that disquieted me. "'I got out and climbed on the top of the rock, "'but all was still save for the gentle lap of the tide "'and the croak of some nightbird among the crags. "'The third time I was suddenly quite awake, "'and without any reason, "'for I had not been dreaming.' Now I've slept hundreds of times alone beside my horse on the veld, and I never knew any cause for such awakenings but the one, and that was the presence nearby of some human being. A man who is accustomed to solitude gets this extra sense which announces like an alarm clock the approach of one of his own kind. But I could hear nothing. There was a scraping and rustling on the moor, but that was only the wind and the little wild things of the hills. A fox, perhaps, or a blue hare. I CONVINCED MY REASON, BUT NOT MY SENSES, AND FOR LONG I LAY AWAKE WITH MY EARS AT FULL COCK AND EVERY NERVE TENSE. THEN I FELL ASLEEP AND WOKE TO THE FIRST FLUSH OF DAWN. THE SUN WAS BEHIND THE COOL AND THE HILLS WERE BLACK AS INK, BUT FAR OUT IN THE WESTERN SEAS WAS A BROAD BAND OF GOLD. I GOT UP AND WENT DOWN TO THE SHORE. THE MOUTH OF THE STREAM WAS SHALLOW, BUT AS I MOVED SOUTH I CAME TO A PLACE WHERE TWO SMALL CAPES ENCLOSED AN INLET. It must have been a fault in the volcanic rock, for its depth was portentous. I stripped and dived far into the cold abysses, but I did not reach the bottom. I came to the surface rather breathless, and struck out to sea, where I floated on my back and looked at the great rampart of Crag. I saw that the place where I had spent the night was only a little oasis of green at the base of one of the grimmest quarries the imagination could picture. It was as desert as Damarland, I noticed, too, how sharply the cliffs rose from the level. There were chimneys and gullies by which a man might have made his way to the summit, but no one of them could have been scaled except by an experienced mountaineer. I was feeling better now, with all the frowsiness washed out of me, and I dried myself by racing up and down the heather. Then I noticed something. There were marks of human feet at the top of the deep-water inlet, and not mine, for they were on the other side. A short sea turf was bruised and trampled in several places, and there were broken stems of bracken. I thought that some fisherman had probably landed there to stretch his legs. But that set me thinking of the Portuguese Jew. After breakfasting on my last morsels of food, a knuckle of braxy and a bit of oatcake I set about tracking him from the place where he had first entered the glen. To get my bearings, I went back over the road I'd come myself, and after a good deal of trouble I found his spoor. It was pretty clear as far as the stream, for he had been walking, or rather running, over ground with many patches of gravel on it. After that it was difficult, and I lost it entirely in the rough heather below the crags. All that I could make out for certain was that he had crossed the stream, and that his business, whatever it was, had been with the few acres of tumbled wilderness below the precipices. I spent a busy morning there, but found nothing except the skeleton of a sheep picked clean by the ravens. It was a thankless job, and I got very cross over it. I had an ugly feeling that I was on a false scent and wasting my time. I wished to heaven I had old Peter with me; he could follow spoor like a bushman and would have riddled the Portuguese Jew's track out of any jungle on earth. That was a game I'd never learned, for in the old days I'd always left it to my natives. I chucked the attempt and lay disconsolately on a warm patch of grass and smoked and thought about Peter. But my chief reflections were that I had breakfasted at five, and that it was now eleven, that I was intolerably hungry, and there was nothing here to feed a grasshopper, and that I should starve unless I got supplies. It was a long road to my catch, but there were no two ways of it. My only hope was to sit tight in the glen, and it might involve a wait of days. To wait I must have food, and though it meant relinquishing guard for a matter of six hours, the risk had to be taken. I set off at a brisk pace with a very depressed mind. From the map it seemed that a shortcut lay over the pass in the range. I resolved to take it, and that shortcut, like most of its kind, was unblessed by heaven. I won't dwell upon the discomforts of the journey. I found myself slithering among screes, climbing steep chimneys, and traveling precariously along razorbacks. The shoes were nearly rent from my feet by the infernal rocks, which were all pitted as if by some geological smallpox. When at last I crossed the divide, I had a horrible business getting down from one level to another in a gruesome quarry, where each step was composed of smooth boiler plates. but at last I was among the bogs on the east side and came to the place beside the road where I had fixed my catch. The faithful Amos had not failed me. There were the provisions, a couple of small loaves, a dozen tins, and a bottle of whiskey. I made the best pack I could of them in my waterproof, swung it on my stick, and started back, thinking that I must be very like the picture of Christian on the title page of Pilgrim's Progress. I was like Christian before I reached my destination, Christian after he had got the up-the-hill difficulty. The morning's walk had been bad, but the afternoon's was worse, for I was in a fever to get back, and having had enough of the hills chose the longer route i had followed the previous day. I was mortally afraid of being seen, "'for I cut a queer figure, "'so I avoided every stretch of road "'where I had not a clear view ahead. "'Many weary detours I made "'among moss hags and screes "'and the stony channels of burns. "'But I got there, at last, "'and it was almost with a sense of comfort "'that I flung my pack down beside the stream "'where I had passed the night. "'I ate a good meal, lit my pipe, "'and fell into the equable mood "'which follows upon fatigue-ended "'and hunger-satisfied. "'The sun was westering, "'and its light fell upon the rock wall "'above the place where I had abandoned my search for the spore. "'And as I gazed at it idly, "'I saw a curious thing. "'It seemed to be split in two, "'and a shaft of sunlight came through between. "'There could be no doubt about it. "'I saw the end of the shaft on the moor beneath, "'while all the rest lay in shadow. "'I rubbed my eyes "'and got out my glasses. "'Then I guessed the explanation. "'There was a rock tower "'close against the face of the main precipice, "'and indistinguishable from it to anyone looking direct at the face. "'Only when the sun fell on it obliquely could it be discovered, "'and between the tower and the cliff there must be a substantial hollow. "'The discovery brought me to my feet "'and set me running towards the end of the shaft of sunlight. "'I left the heather, scrambled up some yards of screes, "'and had a difficult time on some very smooth slabs "'where only the friction of tweed and rough rock gave me a hold.' "'Slowly I worked my way towards the speck of sunlight "'till I found a handhold "'and swung myself into the crack. "'On one side was the main wall of the hill, "'on the other a tower some ninety feet high, "'and between them a long crevice varying in width from three to six feet. "'Beyond it there showed a small bright patch of sea. "'There was more, "'for at the point where I entered it "'there was an overhang which made a fine cavern, "'low at the entrance, "'but a dozen feet high inside, "'and as dry as tinder.' Here, thought I, is the perfect hiding place. Before going further, I resolved to return for food. It was not very easy descending, and I slipped the last twenty feet, landing on my head in a soft patch of screese. At the burn side, I filled my flask from the whiskey bottle and put half a loaf, a tin of sardines, a tin of tongue, and a packet of chocolate in my waterproof pockets. Laden as I was, it took me some time to get up again, but I managed it, "'and stored my belongings in the corner of the cave. "'Then I set out to explore the rest of the crack. "'It slanted down, and then rose again to a small platform. "'After that it dropped in easy steps to the moor beyond the tower. "'If the Portuguese Jew had come here, "'that was the way by which he had reached it, "'for he would not have had time to make my ascent. "'I went very cautiously, "'for I felt I was on the eve of a big discovery. "'The platform was partly hidden from my end "'by a bend in the crack,' it was more or less screened by an outlying bastion of the tower from the other side. Its surface was covered with fine, powdery dust, as were the steps beyond it. In some excitement, I knelt down and examined it. Beyond doubt, there was spoor here. I knew the Portuguese Jews' footmarks by this time, and I made them out clearly, especially in one corner. But there were other footsteps, quite different. The ones showed the rackets of rough country boots, and others were from unnailed soles. "'Again I longed for Peter to make certain, "'though I was pretty sure of my conclusions. "'The man I had followed had come here, "'and he had not stayed long. "'Someone else had been here, "'probably later, "'for the unnailed shoes overlaid the rackets. "'The first man might have left a message for the second. "'Perhaps the second was that human presence "'of which I had been dimly conscious in the night-time. "'I carefully removed all traces of my own footmarks "'and went back to my cave.' "'My head was humming with my discovery. "'I remembered Gresson's word to his friend, "'Tomorrow night. "'As I read it, the Portuguese Jew had taken a message "'from Gresson to someone, "'and that someone had come from somewhere and picked it up. "'The message contained an assignation for this very night. "'I had found a point of observation, "'for no one was likely to come near my cave, "'which was reached from the moor by such a toilsome climb. "'There I should bivouac and see what the darkness brought forth.' I remember reflecting on the amazing luck which had so far attended me. As I looked for my refuge at the blue haze of twilight creeping over the waters, I felt my pulses quicken with a wild anticipation. Then I heard a sound below me and craned my neck round the edge of the tower. A man was climbing up the rock by the way I had come. Join us next week Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for Chapter 7 of Mr. Stanfast* by John Buchan. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.